hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. In case you're new to this channel, uh, what we do is we take well-crafted horror films and discuss why they uh, why they scare us. And each of us is different on this podcast. We each have different things that scare us. And in fact, we have different ideas of really even what fear is in some of the movies that we watch. And I think that that's a little important tonight because the, the movie we're going to be discussing this evening is not really a horror movie, at least not traditionally. Um, but as we've discovered on this podcast, many non-traditional horror films can be horrifying. And that's really all that matters to us. Not necessarily the genre per se, but the experience of engaging with the film and what it does to us. As Jim is fond of saying, if Annie Hall scares you, we're going to treat it like horror. It's as simple as that. Annie Hall horror. That may actually be something we discuss, and I'm really hoping we do that, maybe next April Fool's. Uh, and so tonight's film we're going to be discussing is the first of uh, Igmar Bergman's Faith Trilogy, uh, or Silence of God Trilogy, I've also heard it called, um, which is Through a Glass Darkly. And so the film tells the story of a young woman named Corinne who has recently returned to the family island after spending some time in a mental hospital. And on the island with her is her lonely brother and kind but increasingly desperate husband, played by Max von Sydow, who's in The Seventh Seal. Uh, they're joined by Corinne's father, Gunnar Bjornstrand, who was also in The Seventh Seal. Uh, a lot of a lot of Seventh Seal people in this. Uh, who is a world-traveling author that is estranged, sort of estranged, to his children. And the film depicts how Karen's grip on reality slowly begins to slip away due to her schizophrenia and how the bonds between the family members are changing in light of this fact. And so if you're interested, we actually did a podcast on The Seventh Seal. Uh, you can check it out on our channel. We're all pretty much, I, I mean, I think I would say we're all fans of Igmar Bergman, especially Ben, who has described The Seventh Seal as probably the best film ever made to him. Um, you know, after Annabelle Creation, I think. I think that was better, slightly. I mean, it's like the lingering specter of death in the silence of God on one hand versus like a doll. Like, it's a tough choice. I get it, Ben. I get it. You don't need to say anything. I get it. Um, so tonight's film was selected by you, our audience. This was a film recommendation. So much better than Martyrs, I might add. Thank you for this one. Um, and, you know, other than the crippling search for meaning, grounding, and existential context, I'm curious why all of you selected this film. So I'm going to hand this over to you, audience. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. You're not, you're not here. We, we have to talk about the movie, not, not you. Um, but I am really curious what my co-host thought, especially in light of the fact that we did a Bergman film previously. And, you know, it was obviously fantastic. So I'm curious, just general thoughts. Maybe we'll start with Ben, since we, you know, did The Seventh Seal. That was his choice. Like, Ben, what did you think specifically of this movie, and how would you compare it to The Seventh Seal, both aesthetically for you, in terms of content? Like, I'm curious, where there's some similar strands, I think, between movies. There's major differences, but I think there's similar strands. So I'm curious how, like, what you thought of this movie specifically. Well, that's certainly a lot to dig into. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. Obviously, there are some common strands here. And uh, whenever you talk about the the Faith Trilogy, if, if I'm not mistaken, that includes uh, Through a Glass Darkly, uh, Winter Light, and The Silence, um, not Seventh Seal, which is a little bit surprising because I think primarily the, the biggest sort of overtone that you have in, in The Seventh Seal is that there is this, this absence of God prevalent. Even whenever we try to f get like our final answers from death, he provides no answers. There's no knowledge that he can impart. And I think that's that's really kind of like the the biggest similarity that I saw with Through a Glass Darkly was because through Corinne's schizophrenia, she has this experience of waiting for God as she sees it. There's this 
crack in the wall and she's hearing these voices and she has these experiences of walking through it like foliage and and these beings or people or whatever talking to her and they're all waiting and at the very end of the movie the climax of course we have the door open um and she's waiting for this this god to appear to her but it's not the experience that she expects in fact it's something quite terrifying and and it's something that attacks her and it's a much more violent negative than one would attribute to God. But whenever she's explaining this to her father, her husband and her brother, she breaks down the experience. And then that's, that's what she ends with. I have seen God. And it's, it's sort of this, this sort of sobering, um, a heavy sort of revelation. Um, but I think it pairs really interestingly with, uh, whenever her father is talking to her brother after Corinne and her husband leave, um, and her father talks about God as being love or love being the evidence of God. And so you have two very different interpretations. But I think that's fascinating because the interpretation that we get at the end of God being love seems to be self-generated and something that is needed to protect one from the harshness of reality, which is also interesting, I think, because there's there's a lot of Bergman that you see in that moment, I think. And that's that's something that we can probably dig into a little bit is Bergman, Bergman the man. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's that that similarity, I think, is that we get no clear answers, but then each sort of character in the movie happens to have their their kind of like own interpretation of the events, which is exactly how Seventh Seal seems to end to me is that you have all of the people in, in the dining room looking up or looking toward death and greeting him differently. And so you have this very personal experience being explored um, because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely it's fascinating. And once again, we have a really really incredibly deep conveyance of of the inner experience of the director through this this film um aesthetically speaking again like obviously this is another black and white movie but the use of lighting is absolutely fantastic and i think i didn't appreciate that quite as much in the seventh seal i don't think we saw the same kinds of shots that you have in through glass darkly there's a lot of close-up very personal shots in fact one of my favorite that I, i think i shared with you guys prior to the podcast whenever we first watched this um was when Corinne and her, I forget what's Max's character's name, Martin. Martin. They're laying in bed and she wakes up and it's very early in the morning and she hears the cuckoos, the birds, which earlier in the film her brother did not hear. So that tells me she's having maybe one of her episodes, which is an interesting way to begin that scene. But she's looking and presumably we're taking we're taking the perspective from where the wall would be next to the bed and we're looking over Martin and she's waking up and the, the light is perfectly just cast against her face while the rest of the room is still in shadow. And it is such a brilliant way to focus in on her expression. And just I, it's it's absolutely fantastic. I don't know. Not to mention just again, like there's there's stories nested within stories here where we have, you know, each individual interplay of like the different plots going on. But also we have like this play set up again about the experience of death. Right. So there's this other theme here and I'm, I'm really not sure I haven't 100 percent understood the connection between this sort of like sub story within that play that they do and the larger narrative of the movie. But I, it's it's very, very clearly about death and how one approaches death and like how one fears death. Um, anyway, there's just there's so much to unpack here. It's it's I really do like this film as well. Um, I don't necessarily know that I I dug it quite as much as the Seventh Seal, but again, it is it is very clearly another masterwork from Bergman, um, and explores many of the same themes um, in a fantastic in a fantastic way. That's I guess that's my introductory sort of thought. It's it's another great one. He hit it out of the park. Yeah, I'm I'm high on the film as well. Um, it's it's actually my third favorite Bergman film. Seventh Seal is is a little bit below uh, fifth favorite Bergman film. 
But uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, I want to uh, unpack a lot of the same themes that you want to talk about, Ben, but uh, just as sort of an umbrella um, interpretation of the movie, I think it's about uh, a lot of, there's a lot, this is a movie that's essentially a novel. Um, it feels it feels more like a novel than it does a film, even though it is visually uh, arresting, as you uh, pointed out with that one particular shot. And I think that each of these characters kind of deserves their own time to unpack what they're about and what they're interested in. Um, there are two uh, aspects that I'll just talk about right now that I find particularly fascinating, and that is people's relationship with art. Uh, you talked about that that play, and I actually see that play as the son, Minus, uh, telling his father about the priorities that art should play in one's life. Um, that it's that that is a play written directly for his father. And then later on, of course, uh, he he's trying to engage his father about the play and uh he says did you think this was good and the father gives this kind of surface yeah it was good and then minos says well actually i thought it was horrible because i think for minos that play did not do the thing that he wanted to do wanted it to do and that is get his father to communicate with him and and oddly enough i think that the person who has one of the best kind of insights into Bergman is actually, oddly enough, Woody Allen. You brought up uh, Annie Hall a little bit ago, and they're in Annie Hall. They go to see a Bergman film. They go to see Persona. And uh, there's this there's this great moment in Deconstructing Harry where Billy Crystal's character says to Woody Allen's character, you put your art into your work. I put my art into my life. And I think that that's one of the major themes in this movie as well about the placement of our priorities and the placement of our um, where we our relationship to art, especially the art that we create. And I think that's that's especially true with the uh, with Minus and with um, with David's characters. Um, also, I think we talked about I, I think we are going to have to get into and we will get into the. Uh, depictions of God and faith and spirituality in this film. And uh, I'm of two minds about that. One of my criticisms of this movie is uh, some of the how some of that that stuff resolves. But it's interesting to me that um, there's the, it, 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 it feels as though the film is almost casting faith and belief into the realm of delusion. And I find that to be a fascinating and and difficult statement to reckon with, that uh, the, the one character who believes in, in God throughout the majority of the film until that last scene, uh, the one character who believes in God is the one character who is mentally ill, and it is hard for the other characters and her to... Uh, decipher which is belief, wh what is belief, and what is a symptom of her schizophrenia. Um, so yeah, I think that this is a rich and layered movie that I it's it's ripe for the the deadly analysis podcast. Like this is this this is the type of uh, film that we like to uh, dive into. So uh, 
yeah <laughs> buckle up folks this one's gonna be a uh, a long podcast but i'll uh, i'll throw it over to shara and get your general impressions first i think i'm more of a 50s bergman fan than i am a 60s bergman fan this is not to to poo poo on it but uh i i am more of a seventh seal than this i think um i i i think it has a lot to do with the starkness of the whites and blacks that are in a seventh seal then with this is a little bit more washed out that doesn't mean that it's not beautifully shot though this film is very beautifully shot um and one of the interesting things about it is um so ben you were talking about a scene where she's laying in bed and it's really dark behind her and it's like very focused on her face. I love face-focused uh, shots. If you go to my Instagram, you will see almost all my shots from movies I watch will have someone looking straight onto the camera. That's something I love. I love it when a film does that. And I love it when you can look into that person's soul and try to read what they're thinking. And it's especially interesting when you can't read what they're thinking because there's a madness happening within them. Um, and I think Kubrick does this really well, too. <laughs> he has the straight on. It's called the Kubrick stare that they have uh, that's that's really popular. Maybe this is a, a Bergman stare, I guess. It's more of just a, um, a your mind is wandering and and you're trying to figure something out, some kind of mystery. But um, the thing that's interesting about that shot is that the the title of the film is Through a Glass Darkly. And this is from a... Uh, biblical text and it's hard to understand unless you understand what mirrors were during that time so um i watched a uh interview with the people who made this film and they wanted to explain why that is such an important thing to take note of when watching this film and um if you look at the mirrors from back in those times it was a uh, metal they didn't have mirrors like we have today. Uh, they were these metal mirrors. And if you look in them, you can see a reflection, sure, but everything behind you looks kind of hazy and dark. Um, it's, a, it, it's skewing the reality of your world. So the only way that you can see yourself is it's kind of a distorted reflection of yourself with this dark kind of um, almost frightening version of your reality. And so this film for me is about trying to see, trying to be seen, trying to look out. And this mere idea is the perfect idea of that because what is reality? Even if we take videos or pictures, we have technology today that's amazing. Our mirrors are better, but what is reality? It's only what our perspective is. And that's frightening as fuck if you think about it. It's, it's a truly frightening thing to think that maybe you're not actually perceiving things correctly and you can't understand what actually is happening around you. You have to basically go off of what other people say. If you're seeing things and hearing things and everyone around you is saying that's not there, it, that's crazy. <laughs> it feels crazy and you, and you get scared and and you react obviously, as, as we see from this character in this story, she reacts in horror um so it's just a it's an idea of reflecting on ourselves and the reason why that is so important i think is because i think this was a film where bergman was reflecting on himself and his childhood and his issues with his religious father uh and trying to figure out what it is 
that he can do. It's it's almost emo. Like you think of those emo times back in like the early 2000s. You have those emo bands that are screaming out to their fathers like, dad, do you notice me now? That's like literally what Bergman's doing in this, except in a much more artistic way. <laughs> He's standing on the rooftop <laughs> screaming at his dad, like, notice me. I, I'm important. I, I can make art and I can and make people think. And um, so... Yeah, I, I, I know it's, I shouldn't say this is an emo movie, but I feel like this is super emo. And I got those weird, like, The Cure vibes with the spider god. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard the song Lullaby by The Cure. I had those kinds of vibes from this, um, from that music video. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like this is <laughs> an emo teenager coming out and, and screaming at his dad. I, I know that you guys are hating that interpretation. I don't care. That's what I, I would have loved. All I'm saying is I would have loved to just have like Martin just slowly, Martin look at the, just slowly look at the camera and be like, notice me, senpai. And that's how the movie ends. Like that's how Bergman's film ends. I would love that. I would love that. Someone needs I, to make yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's more sophisticated than that. I really do. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Minus is, relationship with his father is and his relationship with his sister is far more sophisticated with that especially i i mean given the fact that we have the sort of incestuous scene that uh his father knows about and that uh and that kind of colors that last moment yeah i it's there's a lot i i don't know i think it's I mean, I like The Cure. I mean, they're they're probably my second favorite band, but I I also think they're more sophisticated than than just an emo band. So maybe I probably should uh, should uh, talk too much about that. Maybe my reality is different. From Are that. we disagreeing about art? <laughs> this what? reminds me. This reminds me of a quote from the film. I wonder if we're all in a cage. I'm in mine, and you're in yours. Hmm. I'm just trying to pretend like that was that was interesting and intelligent. Um, I think that I think that he one said that after looking at porn, though. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you have your style. I have mine. You have your cage, your Pornhub channel, you know, and I, yeah, uh, clearly that's what he meant. I just want to see how far we can do take this and see how mad Jim can get that we're going to just ruin this film and bring it down to the level of weebs and anime and senpais. And, no, you know, we're going to do it. Um so I, I actually think part of the disagreement comes down to an aesthetic thing. Because I, I let's build with how light is used in this movie versus Seven Seals. So Shayra says, you know, it's more contrast in Seven Seals. And she's right, a dark, uh, 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 darks and and whites, right? Um, but so in um, in a, a glass darkly, uh, Bergman uses an abundance of real light. That's why it's it feels different. Um, there, there's a, a ton of natural light in this movie. And I think to me, <clears throat> that's a little poetic. There's a sense of realism in this movie. And I think that that can be, you know, abstracted to the idea that this is a movie about searching for context, largely. For, for me, I saw this as a movie where there are people looking for everything to make sense, for a grounding to interpretation and meaning and value, right? This is the whole idea about a crack in the wall, losing one's grip on reality, a central narrative that everyone can adhere to, making sense of the world collectively in a way that everyone can subscribe to. And this movie is a demythologizing of a particular religious concept, a particular religious way of answer of giving that to people, right? 
when you look at Christianity, it's a very centralized narrative that offers everyone a very, uh, I don't want to say rigid, but a very um, segmented and regimented scope about the way the world is and our place in it. And when you lose that, aka your Bergman, you start to question everything. You don't just question Seven Seal style, what is death? How do I approach death? Where do I go when I die? You 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 even dig into more fundamental things like, okay, let's let's pause that question. Let's pause the seven seal question. Let's get more fundamental and ask, how do I referent? anything? How do I reference anything? Is there a reference? How do I make sense of my life and where I am in it before I die? And I think that's what, uh, that's what this film is about. Um, you know, I, there, there's, there's a lot going on in this movie. I think the art piece, I think I side more with Jim about Minos and his father and, and art. And, and let's, 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 let's call that like the art discussion. I feel like that is a, a, a side discussion in this film where I th whereas I think the more the more central discussion is like what is this film trying to convey about Bergman and his way of looking at the world in relation to religion and death um, but I I think the most important line in this whole movie comes from Corinne when she says um and and I, I love this I mean this just caught me so off guard this movie has all these little one-liners that you just don't expect and they're some of the most profound statements. And they're out of nowhere. And so I just, I love that about this movie. But the, the one that hit me the hardest is Corinne says, if you look long enough with your head tilted to the side, it gives you the creeps, right? That is seeing the world through a schism, through a glass darkly, right? Which is, Shara mentioned about the mirrors and a glass darkly, but this is a distinctly biblical um, phrase and line from 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul basically argues that our ability to see the true essence of the world, the way the world really is, that sort of Plato fucking, or I'm sorry, this, um, not Plato, excuse me, this Aristotelian notion that the thing in and of itself, right, like that the way the world really is, um, Paul argues that that sort of thing is obscured as if we're looking through a glass darkly. And I think that there's a religious connotation to that. There's a reason for that. Some would call it sin, but but the idea is that we all don't see the world for what it is, for what it truly is. And so, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that without God? How do we make how do we make sense of that when we see someone literally going through this, this seeing the crack in the wall and losing themselves? You know, watching that happen. And you have these four characters that sort of that sort of interact differently amongst the same question, seeing the same thing happen. So. That is, that's how I sort of, whoop, that's how I sort of took the, um, the, the central piece of this movie. Um, I'm, I'm curious, I, I feel like we're, we're hopping around similar stuff, but I don't know if you guys are on the same page. Yeah. I just want to build off of your, your reading of first Corinthians 13, 12 for now, I see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even also as I am known. So I think there is a, a, it seems to me that Paul is, is referencing a, a wisdom that one would achieve when one, uh, when one encounters God or one encounters the truth. And in the Christian, in a Christian viewpoint, the truth would be God. But then what happens in this movie? She encounters God and it turns out to be a, a spider monster that tries to rape her. 
that is uh, so it's it's sort of a Bergman twist on a biblical theme and and a Bergman twist on a, a on a conception of death that is ultimately rewarding and ultimately um truth defining and i think that you're right when you're when you're talking about how this film is is suggesting that those that those truths that there are no easy answers and what is what are one of the easy answers that people go to when they talk about life's meaning they go to art or they go to love and relationships and each of those so we've got martin who seeks the truth and meaning in a relationship in a love relationship we have um david who seeks uh truth and meaning with his relationship with art and we have minus who um is sort of vacillating between between the two uh and and his relationship with his sister as we as is revealed in that final conversation um do you think that because karen feels that we are that we love her, that we surround her with love, that that is sort of evidence of God. At the end of the film, that's what he says. And then at the beginning of the film, we get him trying to communicate with his father through art. I think that those are, like, I, I agree with you that we can kind of cordon off the art conversation in one corner and corner off the, the God conversation in, in another corner. But there is some interrelation. Like, those Venn diagrams do meet. They do, they do go over each other. And I think that that's part of what it makes. It makes a lot of sense to me that this is about the, the search for meaning in a world in which God is the um result of a mental illness well i think there's there's a a little bit of a different way to look at that too and in that uh example where you mention kind of like a venn diagram where or different people are sort of meeting in an, an overlap there i think that's the perfect way to look at this um and it really does i think go back to what um and i obviously i'm not going to be super great at the names here um martin david minus and karen Maybe it's David then, because I'm trying to think of the David father's is the name. David the father. Okay. David, yes. Well, okay, so when he goes back and he starts explaining <clears throat> God as love, um, and I think that's that's super important because whenever you you blow out, and you don't just look at the the one verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, you look at the full 1 Corinthians 13, it's that thing that everyone's heard before um, about love. Love is patient, love is kind, it's that whole thing. And if you really kind of like take that into, and of course, like I'm going to try and do an exegesis here, it's perfectly, beautifully ironic. Um, we're looking at this this passage about love, um, and it's it's really about, I think, how love sort of clarifies us from imperfection to perfection and allows us to see eye to eye. Um, it's really kind of like a bridge between people who are trapped in individual cages and sort of caught up in their own individual games, but love can create a bridge so that they can understand each other and fully kind of comprehend greater meaning. Um, and in that ending scene, I, I think we see David and Minus understanding each other more fully, like they haven't through the entire film. Like Minus has been trying to get his father to speak to him, really genuinely reach out and speak to him and and build that connection there. And that doesn't happen, I think, until they're kind of like united by this this shared trouble and their shared love of Karin because she's going through this problem 
and she has to be taken away back into the city to a hospital. And they're sort of talking about that experience that she just conveyed. And through, I think, their common love of her, they are able to make a connection and understand each other because they have that shared love. And, yeah, just based on that, I think, like, that's that's probably really sort of, like, the key here because Minus, David, and Martin all care about her in different ways and everyone kind of like has their own sort of like subplot and different story and and but but she is sort of like the focal point there and while i think she sort of seemingly i think believes that she has the clearest understanding of god and like she she sees this vision and has this distortion i don't think the film is inherently saying that god is the result of of that delusion even though she is kind of the crux and the 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 central point between these three other characters it offers that other side too that shows no god can be this other thing and directly references this passage in the in the christian bible and shows how that shared experience of love can really kind of like be a truer meaning or at least maybe a preferred uh, interpretation that i don't necessarily think really speaks of delusion at all in fact i think i think their their shared love is probably the realest most clear um yeah, like least obscured experience that we see throughout the entire film. I don't know. It's I I, I don't I, I don't think I, I have the words to describe it. But do do you kind of understand what I'm I'm sort of getting at here? Like there's I, there's two sides I, of that. There's yeah. the delusion interpretation, but then there's this other thing that seems much more charitable. Yeah, God is love, Jim. Jeez, well, duh. Yeah, and that's and that's, this is me saying that. Just you know, this that's is my, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it, you're getting at my exact criticism with the film is that the uh, the final answer is God is love, and I'm like, fucking Bergman, you are smarter than that. Like that's a that's but that's the point. But I think that might be the point. I think like I agree with you, Jim. But the more I thought about that, the more I wondered if that was the point. The sort of ad hoc, shoehorned easy answer i don't know maybe it's not an easy answer I, I take that back it's not an easy answer but it's a convenient at the very end smuggled in ad hoc so, and so maybe that reflects bergman's understanding of the world at the time right because this is the beginning of the faith trilogy my understanding is by the end of that faith trilogy love ain't the thing that's going to do it like it's it, it's it's silence at that point that's true oh. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, so I wonder if this is um, just reflecting, you know, his uh, his thought process or his thinking at the time, the beginning of the metamorphosis, if you will, to throw a Nietzschean phrase in there because I have to do that in every podcast. So, yeah, uh, I I wonder if that's on purpose, you know, because I, I, I felt the same way you did. I was like, this is really shoehorned ad hoc. Didn't I was like, come on, that's how it's going to end. Like, ah, it just it was almost like the ending of Sunshine. What a great movie! And then there's this monster at the end that just doesn't make sense. It's like this last thing you threw in. It's like. Ah, like, no, though, I don't, I'm not, that seems so different than everything else, man. So I don't know. I, I'm hoping it was kind of purposeful. I mean, it does make perfect sense too, just based on some of the, the, um, documentaries that I've seen about Bergman personally. I, I don't know if you guys have watched much of those just kind of learning about his, his life, but in, in some ways people sort of described him as being perpetually kind of like a child and sort of living within his art. And that was kind of like his world that he lived in. Um, but then of course, like he also had a lot of trouble with different marriages and he was a little bit of a, um, well, not, not great. I, I, from, from what I understand, uh, maybe a little bit of a womanizer and didn't really have a great relationship with all of his kids across all of these different women. Um, and there was even a point, uh, earlier in his childhood, I think where he was sort of, um, had a, a drawn like market appeal to certain 
political figures at the time that maybe necessarily didn't turn out to be as great as some people thought they were going to be uh, at that time. And so there's there's this point in the movie when they're talking about how, you know, you're in this game and you're doing this thing. And every now and again, you get pulled out of that into reality. You just get sort of pulled out of your game into the brutal, cold, harsh reality that you are trying to protect yourself from and largely ignore, I think, prob- probably for him through his art. And I, you know, I think that that character sort of being that writer and he's using his own family for like the material for his book. And, you know, he's primarily thinking about that and being very selfish um, and kind of doing his own thing that way. And then suddenly has to be pulled into this. No, my daughter actually has this real problem. And suddenly he's pulled into reality and, and it's kind of difficult. Like you really can't sort of deal with that when your entire life you're absorbed in this thing and you're playing and you're being artistic and creative and and building these other worlds that you presumably much rather live in or like would just express yourself through this medium as opposed to directly face to face with your kids, as it were. Um, But I think because of that, because getting you're getting sort of like pulled violently into this reality that you feel like it's harsh and you have to protect yourself from. I think that's where that that love thing really comes in, because I think it's a fantastic way to to shield yourself from that. Um, and I, I don't think it's quite not, well, I, I don't think it's, um, unfair. Like I, I totally get why a person would want to do that. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you can fall back to the common love and the shared love that you have with others, um, then I think that really does act as a fantastic way to protect you from how difficult life can really be. And so I really, I have a, a hard time faulting somebody for maybe taking that easy answer because it is comforting and it is real and it feels real. Um, and whether or not it has anything to God, I guess that's, that's really what's left up to question there. But, you know, I don't necessarily think it's all that, um, you know, all that wrong and all that terrible of an interpretation. I think of the divine, if that's how you want to take it. I think it's too aphoristic for a film that is talking about that, 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 For an hour and 15 minutes of this movie, we get there is no grand narrative. There is no grand narrative. There is no grand narrative. And at the end, we get God is love, and that's the grand narrative. As grand narratives go, that's relatively aphoristic. Now, I'm still recommending the film. I still like the movie, but I just have a problem with that element of this movie that uh, otherwise I think is incredibly strong. Um, I, I see what you're saying then, and I'm not necessarily going to fault the God is love folks. Um, and I'm not necessarily going to fault the, uh, the idea that, that God is love. I mean, I, I certainly think that if that's an ideology that allows people to be kinder to one another, then God bless, take your ideology and, and, and run with it. But, uh, I, I think that it's... Uh, to end the film on that uh, on that moment is to me a little too aphoristic um, as when we're when we're talking about this film as a whole. Yeah, I actually I, I actually think we're talking about two different things. I think I think we're saying you know I think I think you guys are actually saying something similar. So I think Ben is talking about the quality of the answer, and I think Jim is talking about h- how the answer like how the answer cinematically was given, sort of at the tail end ad hoc, you know what I mean? So I think those are two different things, right? Like the quality of the answer that's given about, like the actual content of God being love and love being the central thing is I think a different sort of thing than how it was used in the film, maybe. I I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think we are, yeah, and and as I said, if if God is love sort of works for for you, Ben, or for you, Minus, and for you, David, then- 
That's God Ben. Bless. Ben, yeah, no look, the, if there's anything I know about Ben, it's that he absolutely believes that God is love. Hundred percent. Tell him, Ben. Tell him. What I would prefer to tell you instead of my own personal theology would be that I, I don't think that's actually how we end the movie, though. the the real the the real ending. It's not it's not ending on what what David has to say about God. It's actually ending on Minos saying, "My father spoke to me." Right. That's the ending. And that's the crux of the film. And that's what I think the grand narrative really kind of is. If there is one, it's not it's not the God thing that's that's in there. And it seems like a huge point, obviously, being the the thing that is most closely related to the title of the film, because, I mean, there I think I think they're talking about the same passage in the Bible. Um, but I think it's it's a little bit deeper than that. I think that's the, the shine on the outside of the jewel like you you have this there, but what's really going on is that they've found a connection. They found a bridge throughout the entire film. You've got different characters with different problems doing different things and they seem sort of disconnected. Um, even though they're kind of like together, they're also sort of apart. Like they come together, they split apart, they come together, they split apart and they don't really fully understand each other. But you do see a glimmer of understanding at the ending and it's because of what's going on with Karen and because of David's interpretation of what's going on speaking with his son. And he happens to mention God, but what he's really talking about is love. And then again, through their shared love of a sister and daughter, they find common ground. I think, I think that's what it is. It's like God is a way to do that or one way to think about that. And I think it just shows that that's why I think a lot of people sort of hold on to this ideal and really just don't want to let it go because it's the best way people have to understand each other and to make things make sense and bearable. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily about God per se, but God is the thing that people use to solve the problem that I think we see throughout 90% of the film. If, if that makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. That makes sense. So, I, yeah, I was I was trying to like un, unmute a couple of times because so, I really wanted to say that point. And I, I was like, yes, when you finally said that. Um, I don't think this was about God being love at all, at all, at all, at all. And, and, and here's the thing. Um, when I was saying that I felt like this was a very emo, uh, daddy, why don't you love me movie, I am not putting it down that is me putting it up i love emo music and this is what i live for so i'm not i'm not trying to shove it down into some like thing and i love the cure too um so if it sounded like i was trying to demean the movie for that i really hope it doesn't come across that way having daddy issues is a totally legitimate thing that a lot of us experience and especially with this particular one i feel very much like i understand that because uh bergman grew up with a dad who was on the stage in a church and was preaching like mine and and there's a there's this whole joke about what happens to girls who have dads that are pastors there's this whole thing of like they they act out and and they'll act crazy and they'll do drugs and they and they act very sexual and all these other things happen to them and and there's this whole thing about pastors daughters that is kind of a running gag but really what is going on when you have a dad who's in a high rank position you are expected to be a reflection of his amazingness so you are constantly put under a lot of pressure you have to behave a certain way you have to know certain things you have to dress a certain way you have to date certain people and all of those pressures create extreme trauma and we know that when children 
endure trauma, they have a hard time actually maturing and growing up like other people do. It takes a lot longer. There's a lot, a lot more hardships that you have to actually try to get through. And honestly, I think Bergman was, this was his way of saying, why didn't you just be there for me, dad? Like, why weren't you just explaining to me things, dad? And that's why the end is what the end is. And there's actually notes in Bergman's own uh, version of, of the script for this film. He is that boy. He sees that boy as himself. And, and so that end scene is uh, a fantasy that Bergman just wanted his dad to do for him. And if you think about that, that is the saddest and most powerful message anyone could ever make in film is dad why didn't you just tell me how to love why didn't you tell me the importance of love why didn't you just talk to me at least once instead of use me as this pawn in your church to you know be be this extension of yourself as opposed to being a person who as ben says build a bridge between our cages so that we can be connected in some way um, and it's his way of saying, dad, why didn't you love me? It's so sad. It is, it is so fucking sad and it's so relatable, right? Because many of us have been there with our parents where we don't feel that connected to them. And so, um, I, I don't know. It's just one of those really powerful moments in film for me. And I did not, all the stuff that the dad was saying, I felt like it was almost, it didn't matter. His dad could have been talking about how much he liked coconut cream pie. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, my dad's talking to me about something that means something to him, right? And and something that he he's trying to bestow wisdom on me finally in a way he never has because he doesn't seem to care. And we know dad doesn't care because in the beginning, he's giving out all these presents to everybody and they're just presents that are clearly dad doesn't give a shit about any of these people. He does not know what they love. He doesn't know what they care about. And, and uh, when they're opening their presents, he doesn't even wait to see them open it because he doesn't care about their reaction because he didn't care about the gifts. They even said, I bet he just bought this, you know, on a whim before he left on, uh, you know, is at the end of his vacation. But he did go in his room and cry. He does feel something for his children. He doesn't know how to express it. He isn't uh, understanding of how to connect with them. He wants to connect with them and doesn't know how to. And that is really the pain. Parent trying to connect with children, children wanting to be connected, but it's still completely disconnected. That is the theme of this film, I think. And that is the problem that that really starts to build when she looks at her dad's diary and realizes he's just using her schizophrenia for a story he's writing. That's really hard to deal with. Like, wow, you are using my problems and my issues to make a book and become famous off of it. That's so messed up. So, I, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm kind of pushing it down when I talk about emo daddy issues, but that's, I really feel like that's what this film's main theme is personally. And, and it does speak to me because that is a hardship that many of us deal with on a daily well, basis. Yeah, I mean, this is to some extent a familial horror film. You know, um, it's largely a familial horror film. Um, it's got a lot of existential stuff. It's got God stuff in it, but yeah, we certainly can't downplay the significance of, of the of David. I mean, I think, I think David is largely a conduit for Bergman in the sense that, you know, David uses the people that are closest to him to, he uses them to study them, right. For his art. And I think 
Bergman largely does this too. When you look at the actors in this movie, a lot of them are in the, the Seventh Seal. Bergman also had a fling with the actress that played Corinne. Um, he uses a lot of the same people in his movies. And I think maybe there's a reflective part of Bergman that says, you know, I, I'm expressing my sorrows and pain and way of trying to look at the world a certain way through art. And I am bringing these people into the actors in that, in that grand narrative. My way of making sense in the world is to make these films express who I am and my struggles and to use people to, to show you that. And that is sort of what David is doing. David is taking really for him, the thing that's should be the closest to him, his own daughter and using her to express his art. So I feel like David is very close to maybe what Bergman is. I, I think that David re resembles Bergman heavily to me when I think of this movie. And I think that goes back to Jim's point about art, where it resides in this movie, that it, you know, I, I take back the idea that it should be side quested, that it is probably more central to this movie than I originally thought um, with David in mind. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know. I, I would, I would, gently caution against the idea of reading too much of Bergman's character into this because you know we we don't he's not here like Marshall McLuhan at any call no uh, he told no he told me actually Bergman well, yeah no he told me oh, in a dream Jim he uh you he know did. the intentional fallacy says that even if he tells you it's so <laughs> shit. Uh, I can't I can't get anything past Jim that's it I can't I can't even that didn't work god damn it all right good touche touche uh Roland Barth told me that uh, uh yeah I so I would I would caution against that but but gently I mean if we want to read into Bergman's life that's that's cool too but I I would I would also caution against demonizing David too much because we see in that moment when he retreats after giving the presence that obviously he is he is in a distraught emotional state and I actually think that underneath this sort of cool stoic veneer he is there's a tumult going on and I would suggest that rather than using uh, Karin's uh, troubles, Karin's uh, schizophrenia as sort of this mercantile capitalistic, oh, I'm going to get rich out of this because I've got a, a book that I'm writing and I'm going to be a world famous author because of this. I think art is something deeper to David. I think art for him is his way of, of, expressing the inner tumult that he can't relate with other people in the same ways that he can relate to his characters in, in art. And we see this on the, the scene with the boat in the boat too. Like he talks very specifically about, um, don't you wish that Karen would have died? And of course, Martin's reaction to that is, is you are grotesque for even thinking that, but it's for David intellectual, and an interpersonal, uh, let me go back, not intellectual, but rather interpersonal reaction is one that's governed through logic. But his relationship with his art in those few scenes that we see him writing are far more emotional and far more emotionally engaged. And art often, we, we know this, art often works as a form of therapy for some artists. And we shouldn't, I, I would caution against admonishing David for using art in a way that we pretty much accept that most artists use art and that is as an expression of an inner demon of as a wrestling of ideas and uh as a a a 
almost is a therapeutic thing, even though there's there's probably better therapies than than actual blank pages. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me. Uh, sorry, I'll let, I'll let you go, like real quick. Trevor. Like what it reminds me of is the scene from Hereditary where Annie is um, doing the little clay, like the little things of the the post where the, miniatures, um, yeah. the, the little miniatures where her and I always thought that was so strange like such a but it was obviously such a coping thing so I did not mean to put hereditary like to talk about these two films but that's originally what struck me when you said that I was like yeah there's, there's horror films that dig into this that the idea of re reflecting and being used as a way of working things out you know some of the horrors of existence and at least through these two movies by uh by utilizing art in that way, even even if people don't understand it or judge it as as bad, you know? I, it goes back to the deconstructing Harry line. You put your art into your art, and I put it into my life. Uh, go ahead, Shayra. Yeah. So the the thing that's very interesting, you mentioned the boat conversation, but the ending part of that conversation is where Martin is is admonishing David and and telling him, "Hey, you know, your art is not reality and you write it so well that you are starting to get lost in this you know fake world that you've created and uh he's like you 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 do this by weaving it with half truths you are having slight fantasy mixed in with reality and therefore you are even buying into your own lies and you aren't living in what is actually occurring right now and I feel like that was so perfect that you mentioned this, Noah. When you mentioned hereditary, that's very similar to what the mother was doing, right? She's mixing a little bit of what's real with her fantasy worlds, and it's causing her to not have a grasp on the actual reality. And it's hard to figure out where things are. And, and this is a huge part of what this film is talking about, right? You have uh, people that are dealing with having a completely skewed reality you have people that have a slightly skewed reality and then you have people that are like this is what's going down <laughs> like this is actually what's happening i love your daughter i don't want her to die um and you are a little bit you know in a fantasy world she's a lot of bit in a fantasy world and we need to figure this out and so um it's it's interesting because it's perspective and whose perspective is correct whose perspective is right and what at what lengths do we use our coping mechanisms and go too far right um so it's it's a very interesting idea of how we deal with the world around us and you know we could definitely attach this to the stuff we do today when we mix fantasy with reality and how we cope with the world around us with our jokes and our memes and our, and our stuff that we jump into to try to handle the fact that there's some very real issues that are at hand here, and and how are we going to handle them? And Martin's in a fantasy world too. Uh, I mean, this Martin's the one saying, "David, you're in a fantasy world," without realizing that his wife won't have sex with him, um, eschews all intimacy with him. And then there's that one moment in the uh, bedroom scene where uh, he says something like. Um, Love is putting uh, putting someone's interest before yours or something along those lines. I, I'm I'm botching the quote, but she says she says something rather cruel to him. And it's at that moment that he realized that in some ways he he is he loves more than he is loved in this relationship. And 
he takes the idea that he loves her as such a fundamental fact of his life that he refuses to see what the relationship that he is actually in does to him. And of course, later on, she cheats on him with her brother, of all people, and uh, that is a secret that ends up getting kept throughout the until the end of the movie. Um, but it's something that we know, and so we know a lot about a lot more about that relationship than Martin does. And uh, he's the idea that he's he is also in a fantasy world. And if anything, the only person who is to some degree not in a fantasy world is Munus. Everybody else is is in some ways deluding themselves into believing the the narratives that they set up for themselves in order to make themselves seem like good or or um, rational people. I was just gonna say maybe I maybe I missed this point. Um, did you all see the same thing that Jim saw? Where I, I know that their relationship between Karin and Minos was very like very affectionate, but maybe I didn't notice the part where it became. Where they actually did something. When, it yeah, was edited so, weird. Can I talk about that edit? Because yeah. Daniel and I rewound it a couple of times. We're like, what is... What? <laughs> what just happened? Did they fuck? I don't get it. Um, yes, they fuck. I, I figure it's just the way they edited it for 1961 to make it that they fucked. Well, you get this, you get this moment where she goes out of frame and then you get water running. And uh, the, it, it's a dissolve cut and then it's water running afterwards. And then they both it, like she emerges. Um, and then when she tells her father about it, um, it's it's in 1961 language. But I think that I, I for me, it was relatively clear that there was there was an incestuous moment there. Was it whenever they're in the boat? In the yes. boat. Yeah. Yes. OK. Okay, well, maybe yeah, I'm just a little I bit naive. I just didn't catch it. <laughs> I was wondering about that, but they they were talking, they were flirting uh, most of the film. Uh, so that was something that was, I was like, where is this going? Like, what is happening here? Um, so the the main line that, that struck me is when he was talking to his sister about all these women, they're just putting him on, like even her. And I was like, Wait, he's an incel even with his sister? Like, what is happening here? Like, why is he saying that about his sister? That's strange. And then you see them laying on the beach and on the rock together. And then she, you know, peeks in at him looking at porn and and kind of giggles about it. And then it's like, ooh, so which girl do you like? And I was like, this is going to a place I was not expecting this film to go. <laughs> and then it got to the boat scene and it cut when they were, he was obviously kissing his sister, I guess, but uh, it cut. And I was like, what just that? Wait, what just happened? <laughs> I'm so confused. Um, and then when you said it, it just clarified it to me. Yes, uh, there's definite incest going on here. Um, and I, I found that this is pretty common in some Bergman films, these not necessarily incest, but uh, taboo sexual uh, encounters seem to be very common in Bergman films. Uh, Persona, there was a whole monologue where she discusses uh, doing some uh, questionable sex acts. So uh, I don't know, like, I think that's part of his like, woo, <laughs> let me mess with your mind a little bit moments. Um, but well. 
Yeah, I mean, we can sort of take apart that scene and, and like, ask ourselves why she has sex with him, why he has sex with her. Um, and I think that both of those things go back to some of the... But the answers to both of those questions go back to some of the earlier things that we were talking about. Um, first of all, obviously, she has a sexual relationship with her god. There is a sexuality to that relationship. We see that in the early scene where she's walking in and she's staring at the wallpaper and then she falls to her knees and and uh, puts her hands between her legs. It's not outwardly masturbatory, but it's certainly a there's there's sensuality or sexuality included in that moment. And of course, when the God comes out of the wallpaper, the God tries to rape her. Um, she has a a sexually uh, repressed relationship with her husband. And so in that scene, this is the person, the only person with whom she's had uh, conversation, open conversations about sexuality. We see that when she catches him reading the, the magazine or looking at the magazine, I guess we should say. They have a uh, long conversation about which one is more attractive. And so... Uh, I think she is in some way seeking a form of of validation or she's seeking a form of intimacy, but she realizes immediately after that moment that what she has done is both against her God and also against the uh, relationship that, that it, it ruins the relationship that she has with her brother. Her brother, on the other hand, is is young, dumb, and full of cum, and uh, is is uh, yeah, he's horny as fuck. But uh, and his sister is the only one that he has the uh, where he's she's the only woman to whom he feels he can relate, and so it it's sort of obviously this this jim and the deadly analysis podcast are not condoning incest but it seems that this is a a relatively logical outcome given these two characters and these two characters needs we also know that she expresses to some degree a desire to go back to the mental institute and to live the rest of her life out there like she we get some indication that she is going to spend the rest of her life at the institute and that she doesn't want to venture out into the world again and inter and, and interact with these people and so it how else would she be able to act out in such an extreme way that would motivate everybody around her to shove her back in, a, in an institute uh, especially considering sh how she views martin's love martin's love is not something that she welcomes um it's not something that she is she is comforted by it's not something it's it's almost a a um a burden that he loves her as much as as he does uh and that's when when someone's love is a burden to one it's uh, you almost want to do the cruelest thing possible in order to release yourself from that burden. It's a, a, it's a sick psychological thing, but it, it happens. Um, and I, I would, I would venture to say that it happens much, much more often than we would, we would ever want to admit. Spoken like a person who's banged his sister. Good job. Good job. 
<laughs> definitely did not do not have a sister much less uh, that's, that, that's, that's 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 what that's why i said that yeah i to, to clarify he is from indiana so i, I had to I had to make that note uh but uh, i live no. in indiana i'm not from here <laughs> yeah yeah so i you hit on something that i thought was actually the scariest part of this whole movie which was corinne's ability really to know that she's losing it and it's going to go and to see it go. Uh, one of the other lines that she says in this movie that was just, just destroyed me was, it's so hard to see your own confusion and to understand it. And that seems to be abstracted in a, in a, high, in a, in a very large way to just being a human. Like being, being a person means that you're the sort of thing that can see, you can ask why. You can understand why you're confused about the world. You get it. You know, you're not, <clears throat> you're not, a, you're not a, a, a lion. You know, you're not a, you're not a raccoon. You you understand the world to a certain degree. You understand your place in it, right? and you understand your own confusion. And I think that's why it's a scary movie. It's it speaks to again, and I I go back to this as being what makes a movie scary is that it hits on something fundamental about being a person, something that is so, something we don't like to think about. And um, you know, to to know your own confusion, to see it, to jump in to that pool to lose it and to jump out and to see that you've jumped into that pool is terrifying. Um, you know, uh, she realizes that she's losing her grip on reality and man, I mean, I, what, what could be more scarier than that? I mean, I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like watching yourself die while you're alive. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a terrifying thing. I am, um, uh, when I was cleaning out my grandfather's house last year, so my grandfather's like 90 and he's in an old folks home now, but I was tasked with cleaning out his house, right? He had this, he literally built this house 60 years ago. So I had to clean it out. And when I was cleaning it out, I found a letter that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, uh, wrote her, her daughters, my mom and my aunt. And my grandmother had, uh, my grandmother had schizophrenia. My mom had schizophrenia, it ran in our family. And my grandmother uh, had that same problem. She uh, consequently it was it was probably when this was filmed in the late 50s, early 60s and um, had shock treatments just like Corinne. Um, and my uh, my grandmother was a writer and she when she was lucid and she wasn't in one of her episodes, she wrote a letter to uh, and I found it. I kept it. And um, it was this like really heartfelt apology for what she would do when she was in her episodes, how she would lose it, that she still sort of knew what she was doing for part of it, but could see her grip on reality slip further and further. And so I think she knew at a certain point she wasn't truly going to be her anymore. And so she wrote this letter and said, you know, I'm sorry for everything I do and I love you and I'm, I'm here now. And while I'm here now, I want to express these things. And that's what I thought of when I watched this. I thought, you know, when I read that, I just lost my shit. I was cleaning the house and I just, it was very difficult for me to read that. But that shows you, you know, there there's a depth to this movie and it hits on something so very deep about people and their love for their family and losing their grip on reality and, and the family having to watch that um, and to try and make sense of it and understand it. It, that's horrifying. You know, it, it's familial in nature. It's fundamental about it, it, the sorts of people that we are and trying to just make sense of the world and to love each other and to find meaning in our relationships with our family, with our friends, but in in this case, our family. And um, that's all over this movie. I mean, it's how long ago is this movie made? I mean, and it's still something that you see in movies today. I, I don't think anywhere near as well as this movie. But um, yeah, I it's a... Uh, 
this has the criteria for me to be one of those movies that is unsettling and lasts. You know, I was telling my wife um, that this one hit me harder than Seven Seal. I, I actually like this movie better than The Seven Seal because of that. I think it spoke to me a little a little more. Um, I think Seven Seal was maybe a more beautiful film in some ways, maybe aesthetically. But yeah, anyway, I, di- I digress. But um, I, I think that's the fear in this movie. The fear is losing a grip on reality, watching yourself lose that grip and trying to make sense of it and watching the people you love the most try to make sense of it. You know, I that's horrifying, man. That's horrifying. And what's interesting is we've been talking about our fears for over two years now. And this is probably the first one that really hit on both you and I's horror, <laughs> right? Like, because the you have the familial, I have the losing of your own uh, thing. So it, this is like that perfect marriage of both of our fears put into a film. And, um, and I found that part of it fascinating. The opening sequence of this film is where all four of these characters are, are coming out of the ocean. They seem so happy and together and everything's fine. And, but there's obviously separate people coming out of this water and then you're going to watch everything fall apart. And it happens in a day. And that's just so crazy. It, it messes with your head because you're like, this is how quickly you can go from these really happy moments with people. Maybe there's these things on the surface that are kind of problematic with your relationships, but you're going to have one day and everything is going to come out of, of being the problems that you have. And it's the fact that it could happen in one day. Yes, we've always had these different problems going on, but in one day, boom, everything goes to shit. That's so horrifying, right? Yeah, and we've we've covered lots of movies where things like that happen. I mean, we did The Invitation, and we we saw that the loss of a child can, you know, immediately change, ruin, change, destroy your whole life. I mean, there's, yeah, I I, I agree with that. That that adds how quick it can happen adds a layer of fear. And I, you know, and I think of Corinne, um, think of in that 24 hour period, just the highs and lows that she goes through and sort sort of the, the tumultuous events within that 24 hour period that happen. It's, it's so exhausting at times in this movie. And I think it's, it's interesting also that there's a, a lot of this movie where Corinne is really up high and then really down low. Like she actually goes upstairs to see God and the crack in the wall. And then she's in the hull of the ship down low. I mean, it, there's, She's going through highs and lows in much the same way I think a person does and I, a person in her state, but then also just being a human being and going through life. And I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, um, interesting thing that happens in this movie that I think is reflective of our capacities to experience these sorts of things, to experience, period, just have experiences. Um, reality, reality can be just as terrifying as a killer doll. (laughs) Back to Annabelle creation. The yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I'm going uh, back to that for some reason. Strange. Well, I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to sort of push back a little bit on 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 both of those points. Um, I mean, this. I yes, the fact that one little mistake, and boom, the shines off the apple is is one of the most terrifying and tumultuous parts about about. Uh, human relationships just the fact that you could say one bad thing and suddenly this relationship that you built your life around is is over but let's not i don't think everything falls apart at the end of this movie i mean we 
we went through a protracted argument where we were talking about how David and Minos uh, end up uh, forming a connection at the end of the movie. And um, Martin still lives in some form of blissful ignorance about the fact that his wife fucked her brother. Um, that is – and they presumably are going off to the ambulance uh, on the, the helicopter and they're going off to uh, – where she's going to stay in in a facility, and he is presumably going to take care of her, which is the thing that he's that has given his life meaning, and that uh, he has uh, engaged in for all of the time um, prior to this twenty four hours. But doesn't it still feel like a tragedy to you? Oh, it feels like an absolute tragedy. the 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 worst tra the tragedy of for me isn't the fact that these relationships fall apart. The tragedy for me is that the relationships stay together despite the fact that the veneers have been taken off and they've seen a little bit beyond the veil and they've seen the fact that there's there are significant problems with this relationships these relationships it's actually more terrifying to me that they stay together than the fact that they they all go their separate ways i would think that that would be even more of a hopeful ending uh if if they had all sort of gone their separate ways after realizing the the poisonous nature of these of of some of these relationships but of course that's not how things happen in real life we keep uh we keep people who are um toxic in some ways near us we keep them near us because we ultimately delude ourselves or genuinely believe that the good outweighs the bad in these relationships and uh that yes, it's it's absolutely tragic, but I don't think the tragedy comes from the dissolution of relation the relationships. I think the tragedy comes from the fact that they they stick with them even though they're intractable, unsolvable issues with each of the relationships. But 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 so the end can't be a sense that can't be positive. I feel like on the one end you're saying you know well let's not be too you know the the end does give us some sort of hope, but it doesn't sound like you actually think the end is hopeful. Now it sounds like what you're saying is it's actually part of the tragedy. I, yes, I, that's what I'm saying. Okay, and I agree with that. I, I mean, I agree with that. I, one of the other lines that I have in here actually goes to this, where I think it, it may be David uh, or Martin, one, Martin, one of the two, but um, one of them says, we draw a magic circle and shut out everything that doesn't agree with our secret games. Each time life breaks the circle, the games turn gray and ridiculous. Then we draw a new circle and we build a new defense. That's they, David. Yeah, yes. David. And uh, that reminds me of sort of, I think, the fear that you're underscoring in your comments, um, you know, that the, uh, not the disillusionment, but the, the capacity for people to see uh, the man behind the curtain, um, you know, the, uh, um, to see the Wizard of Oz, so to speak, and to, and to still play the game. You know, life breaks through and uh, each time life breaks the circle and it becomes gray and ridiculous, we just draw a new circle and build a new defense. So I-, I... And, and the following line is Karen says, poor little daddy, and, and David says, yes, poor little daddy forced to live in reality. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's him realizing that his art has sort of built a facade for himself and then he chooses to live in this facade rather than live with the people uh, that he with his family members. And and that's it's a relationship that's based upon a, a David deluding himself. And uh, how is that how is that 
radically different from the uh, delusions that Karen goes through as well. I don't think I necessarily see that as being a delusion. I mean, I don't think he has any sort of misunderstanding about that's about himself doing that because we have lines of dialogue where they explore what happens prior to the movie. And the reason that they probably haven't seen him for a while. And the reason that he's been gone is because he peaced out after their mom died. And they even mention that Karin suffers from the same thing that she did. And she didn't survive that. Presumably maybe she took her own life, something like that. But I get the sense that not only are we discussing something cyclical here, whenever he talks about the games that we build for ourselves and then those those sort of outer shells get shattered and we get pulled back into reality and then we rebuild, that's a very cyclical thing he's describing there. But it seems like he's familiar with his inability to connect with these people that should be close to him because of this past experience of him exiting right about the time that she died to go off and write his his novel or whatever it is that he is just now finishing whenever they're coming together in this house. Um, and that seems to be their impression of him too. And really whenever they get together and they have these moments where it looks like they're blissful and there's, they're, they're laughing and so on and so forth. I think that's like, that's, that's more of the temporary state than, than the tragic part. Like it's, it's more like they're just getting together and putting up that facade to try and, and make the best that they can with the time that they have together. But in reality, that's their, the foundation there is that they understand that this man who is their father is a man who will leave them right when their mother dies when his wife dies of the same thing that his uh, his daughter is suffering to go off and write this book and i think it's the same thing too with uh, martin because like i the relationship that he seems to have and purely accept is that he is the caretaker for kareen i don't think that he has any illusions about that it's in fact the sense that i got like the overwhelming weirdness that i got from their relationship is because he seemed to relate more to her father than to like Karin's brother. Like there's a clear age and maturity difference there where Karin is much younger seeming than him. And I think it's implied that it's also a factor of age rather than just her being probably a little bit ill. Um, I think he's there and like the, the relationship that he wants to have with her is one of kind of like a father and of a caretaker as, as we are, as we've already discussed a little bit. And he seems to be perfectly fine with that. So I don't think there's any illusion that he is in this relationship where he is getting what he wants out of it in the form of having someone that he can like, he can father in a weird kind of way. And in fact, that's probably why Karine pushes against him a little bit is because her own father <laughs> seems to completely not give a shit about her because he pieces out not taking care of her. She's not getting the care that she needs from her father. So she's going to get it from this other guy who was willing to step in and take that role. Like, I really don't think there's any confusion between these people. This seems to be the foundation and the expected assumption that these sort of flawed relationships are just are the way they are. Like, I, I don't think there's really any, any sort of delusion on that level. I don't think. So, so I really like that because it's so layered in this movie. Like that way of looking at this is really interesting because you're basically saying like the natural state of this, the natural state of the characters in this movie is tragedy. And when they come together, they have to build the illusion, right, of it not being a tragedy in their own different ways. It's not the opposite, right? And I think that's part of, I think, Bergman demythologizing. A lot of these movies I'm realizing are Bergman demythologizing natural intrinsic religious religious uh states like humans religiosity and i think i think there could even be some connections in the way characters look at uh the corinne or even um minos looks at their father is maybe how bergman looks at god um that you know and i i this there's i feel like 
most everything we could say within that can be abstracted to maybe looking at the demythologizing of of, of, of religion and the natural state of being is one of tragedy of, of one of, uh, you know, does that make sense? I feel like I'm trying to connect these things, yeah. but I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. It makes perfect sense. No, I, yeah. I mean, I would just, uh, two points first, um, David, this guy who's, uh, pieced out when, uh, as, as Ben says, pieced out as soon as his wife dies. Like that's the guy who gives us the fucking lecture about love. Like that's the guy who's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to tell you all about what love is. Fuck you, dude. Um, but also like I let's, let's not paint Martin. Yes. Martin definitely accepts and understands that his role is one of caretaker, but he also wants things out of that relationship. He has numerous unsatisfied needs, particularly and obviously sexual. He tries to have sex with his wife two separate times during this film. And in both cases, he is his, uh, is rebuffed and there's even a scene when he's about to go on the boat with uh david and he's doing something else and karen kisses karen kisses him on the cheek and he goes to try to kiss her back but she's already gone like she avoids that second kiss so any for like i i just i think that i i would push back against the idea that these people are happy in the uh, or pleased with or accepting of the relationship dynamics that they have. Because I think each of them is is wanting something more from the relationships that they have with each other. And, and they're they're rebuffed in, in numerous and, and different ways. Do you disagree with that, Ben? No, I, I think that there are, are unrequited sort of desires. Like there, there's stuff going on that's missing. Um, I don't think it's an indication that they don't accept that, though. In fact, I, that's that's one of the this is one of the elements that I think makes this incredibly realistic and a really good way to depict actual relationships. And I don't know if that's just a me thing and I'm saying too much about me, but I feel like real relationships have crazy problems like this. Whenever you dig into people's actual relationships, there's going to be pieces that they're not they're not getting that they have expectations of these other people that, that, that aren't being met. And it goes both ways. And maybe it's not perfect, but they try to make it work anyway. And some people's relationships are a little more dysfunctional than others, but it's just kind of the way it is. And they kind of go with it because they've, they're, I guess, sad. Not, not, not I mean, it's not even satisfied. They, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to call it happy. But they, it goes back to what I think it, and sorry for interrupting you, but I think it ultimately goes back to they end up believing that the good outweighs the bad. Uh, that the things that they are getting from this relationship or the things they are doing for someone else in this relationship outweighs the unsatisfied needs. And sure. I don't I mean, think that uh, I and I does that make sense to you? Is that sort of along the lines of what you're what you're saying or no? Yeah, I, I, I hesitate to put a value judgment on it, though, to say that they feel like there's this calculus going on and the good outweighs the bad. All I all I think is that it's realistic. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't say that it's good, that there's any happiness, that there's any satisfaction. But I know that this is a thing that people actually get themselves into. I I you and I can have a drink and grouse about it one day uh but i i tend to agree with you i would argue that this. what do is, the happily married people have to say about this uh, i would argue this is the reality within everybody's lives uh maybe it, it's on different levels but there's always going to be things where you're like dude i 
I thought we had this conversation already and, and you're like, dude, I thought we were on the same level. And, but this is, this is actually the interesting aspect of relationships, right? There's points where you're just like, what the fuck? I thought I knew you, you did this thing. Ah. And, and then you start to realize, okay, maybe I'm overreacting. <laughs> I get, I get that way sometimes where I, I overreact to some situations where I'm like, I thought I knew you. And then I'm like, whoa, I might be, <laughs> I might be expecting too much. And I think this is one of those stories where they were expecting, uh, they, they aren't expecting much from each other. Um, I, I think they'd like to have certain things there, but even when it doesn't actually come to that place, they're like, it's fine. I, I see that, you know, uh, dog in the fiery building and they're like this is fine this is fine because at the end that's what they kind of do uh but everything's on fire and they're just like this is fine um i don't know it's the reality of relationships are that you're going to be going on a roller coaster and sometimes you're on this level and and another person's on a different level and and you're not meeting each other at at a certain point uh and this is this is where that whole saying goes where like is this the is this the hill you want to die on what what people a lot of the times are saying is is this the thing you want our relationship to end on and that's where you make a decision right like is this is this the thing we're going to die on no <laughs> we we do still love each other we still want to be friends we still want to talk to each other we still have so much in fucking common we're going to we're going to continue this even though this crazy thing happened in our relationship um, it, it is very, very sad in this story, but I think a lot of us do make exceptions for each other and we do compromise. It's sometimes called a compromise for certain things. I don't know. I think that's just life. I'm going to, I'm going to quote my favorite movie of all time. And that is, uh, nobody knows anybody not that well. And uh, that's kind of, yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would say to that is I think, I think you're right, Shayra. I think by and large, I agree with what you're saying. But I think that the people in this movie do want a lot for, from each other. But the existential aspect of this film is that they know that they're not going to get it, but they try anyway. Uh, and that goes back to uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a unproduced screenplay called uh, the chips are down or the Jus sont fait and it is it's essentially i'm not going to re uh go over the entire uh course of the film but it's two people discover in the afterlife that they were meant to be together and they have the opportunity to go back and relive their lives and if they can make the their relationship work then they get to live again um and of course they don't um, and they're sitting in the uh, the afterlife going like, fuck, what's wrong? And spoilers for for the book. But they're sitting back in the in the afterlife going, fuck, we we fucked it up. And a young couple walks up to them and says, uh, we just heard about this new rule. We could go back and live again. And they, and uh, the, what do you think? Should we do it? And the couple sort of look at each other and go, try anyway. And that is sort of the perfect existential 
uh, understand the perfect encapsulation of the existentialist uh, point of view of love. And I think that that's what this film is is getting at. That's the existential thread that's running through this. They know that they're not going to get the things that they want from these relationships, but they try anyway. And in fact, the only one who does get the thing that he wants from the relationships is 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 Minus, as we noted before, where dad talked to me. Um, but does that moment mean as much to Minus as it did to his... Uh, does that moment mean as much to David as it did to Minus? And will that moment repeat itself? That's kind of... That's, that's one of the tragic aspects of that relationship. And so, once again, try anyway. Yeah, I guess I saw the trend. I, I, man, I, I kind of want to agree with Shayra in the sense that I don't think what they were asking for was largely uh, extravagant or huge or crazy or really out of the norm. I mean, think of what everyone wants in this movie, right? Uh, Mar- uh, Mar- Martin, Martin wants to be, he wants to be fulfilled by his spouse. I think he also has a, a somewhat, he has, a, he has a, a push to help her through what she is going through. But I think he just wants a spousal connection in the way he understands a spousal connection. I think uh, Corinne wants to simply see the world for what it is and not have to stare at the crack, so to speak. Um, I think David wants to make art. He wants to he wants to be he wants to produce. He wants to make something. He wants to sort of be authentic, but he, he's incapable of doing it. Uh, Minos wants to talk with his dad. Seems like when I watch this movie, I also get the the vague idea that he wants to bang, um, which you know I think he gets too. By, by the way, he gets that too. I, if you're going to be anyone in this movie, be Minos. That's all I'm saying. Um, but, yeah, uh, but it's his sister. So let's yeah, I mean, do take, do take, do take it when you can get it. When you're on an island, wait a minute. If, while you're, if you're on an island or you're in Kentucky, you take it where you can get it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I felt like these were fairly small things. I, I think these were human things, very normal things. And I think the tragedy is that, see, I didn't get the idea that they know they're not going to get what they want. I, I didn't see that as something they were cognizant of. Maybe I'm misreading what you're saying, Jim. But to me, I didn't I didn't really think that they all knew they weren't going to get what they wanted. I think the tragedy was they didn't understand that they weren't going to get it, that they had these drives. And the the way the world is set up, the cards that they're dealt disallow them from obtaining those things that really make sense, that every human should want. You should want to have a close sexual relationship with your spouse. You should want to see the world for the way it really is and not have to... Uh, delve into the, the, you know, the the world that Kareem's in. You know, you should want to be able to make things. You should want to be able to produce things. We're doing that now when we do this podcast. You know, we all have desires that I think echo some of the characters in this movie, and they're fairly simplistic. And uh, simplistic is the wrong way to put it. They're 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 very natural uh, requests that I think humans have just in light of existing. And the tragedy of this movie is that they're inept in their ability to get what they want from each other, but they keep going on anyway. So it's not like, to me, it's not try anyway when I see this movie. I mean, it's the tragedy of this movie is the try anyway. It's, it's that the, 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 it's, it's rigged. Everything's rigged for them to not get what they want. And I think that goes back into the demythologizing that goes back into searching for context, for grounding for it all to make sense, for meaning, for referent. Um, You know, I, I think that's, I think that goes back to some of the lines that we were talking about of being in your own cage, not being able to see the world for the way it is through a glass darkly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I think maybe I would disagree with you there. And I would say that what they want is is perfectly natural. And it's not a lot from each other. And that's what makes it all the more tragic. 
Yeah, I I see no no in the thing you've just said to me, I see no disagreement in the thing I just said to you. Um, so I actually don't see our our two points of view as as opposing. Uh, I I agree that what they all want is relatively is reasonable and and appropriate. Um, but I also think that the things that they want are all uh, difficult or impossible to get. Um, and I think that the Look, we know that Bergman is an existentialist, right? Like that's not that's the only biographical uh, detail that I'm going to throw into this uh, into my reading of this movie. And so I think that the existential I saw a connection between an existentialist view of love and what I'm seeing in this movie. And and that's what I was attempting to articulate, whether that ex that try anyway at the end of Le Jus Sans Fait um, is tragic or hopeful or whatever. I don't think that Sartre is particularly putting a value judgment on that. And so uh, in that, that's, I guess that's the only sort of slight difference between our, our point of views, but points of view. But even then, like, I don't think that those are too, too much opposed. Do you guys think that part of, I mean, maybe this will answer it. I'm curious what you guys think. Do you guys think the the large part of the horror of this movie, what makes it so tragic, scary, I'll, I'll use those interchangeably, is the idea that they uh, that they actually are all incapable of getting what they want from each other, but they still stay in their relationships the way that they are. I I have a no. I, I think there's okay. a different horror um, okay. that I've sort of sussed out a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, bear with me here because this might be reaching a little bit, guys. So just just. Give me, give me the benefit of the doubt for a second. Reach. So, all right, going back to the Bible verse, let's let's talk about the Bible a little bit more in Corinthians. So I, I maybe I'm misunderstanding this passage, and obviously, like Noah, uh, you probably have a better view of this based on your history than I would. But it seems to me that whenever we're talking about kind of like this union and, and the veil being lifted and answers being provided, and especially as it pertains to Christianity, there's a very sort of end times um kind of spin to that, like all things will be revealed in time. Um, once you go and kind of like meet your creator, um, that's kind of like when you're really going to fully understand. But while you're on this earth, sort of trapped in sin and et cetera, et cetera, whatever, you're not going to be able to see clearly the way that the world is kind of going back to the way that we um, sort of brought that up earlier. That makes me really kind of think about the play a little bit more that Minus put together because he has this opportunity to be joined with somebody eternally in love but to do that, he has to give up his life. He has to be trapped in that tomb forever. Um, I forget exactly. And it's a it's a fantastic line shit. Like, I wish I could remember it word for word. But it's something about um, um, giving oneself over to the abyss or oblivion and being loved only by death or something like that. So I'm kind of wondering about this because he rejects that, right? When, when it really comes time to to make the decision and to to give himself over to this princess or whoever it is. Um, he decides that he would rather not be locked up in this tomb and die. Uh, he would rather live. And the reason that he gives is because, you know, I mean, he, he sees his life as being an act of art, but who is going to be around to appreciate that once he's gone. And so his fear, I think of passing and achieving that love, which I think is the key to understanding this whole movie is this, this idea of an, an interpretation of love. He rejects that totally because He's not getting these sort of service level worldly kind of things that he's looking for. He clearly wants recognition or at least at the very least he wants to hold on to his corporeal existence. 
So I think the real tragedy of this is if we go back to the end of the movie and we're thinking about the answer that we have, that love is sort of is God or God is love or love is the proof of God. And this is sort of the bridge that brings us all together and provides exactly what it is that we want, which is this mutual connection. The horror is that the only way to get that, I think, in this worldview is that you need to die first. You know, because like that's really the only way if we're putting again like a a Christian interpretation on this is that the only way to have that veil lifted, the only way to see clearly is to give up your life and to go ahead and move on. But everyone continues to sort of keep trying anyway when that's just going to prolong their suffering. (laughs) They're not going to give their lives over. They're not going to get the answer that they're really looking for in the way that they're looking for it. But that's the thing that they want to do anyway. They want to trap themselves in these games and they want to keep going through this cycle and continue to make themselves suffer when the real answer is just beyond their grasp outside of the realm of the living. And I think that's kind of like a really messed up idea and kind of like one thing that I think is, is sort of creeps me out about uh, about religious ideologies is that the answer is always just beyond your reach just after the point of death. Um, so there are no answers Mm. while you're alive. There is no clear understanding and clear mutual connection while you're alive. The only way to get that is by dying. And that's kind of fucked up. (laughs) Yes. That's a, it's a deferred clarity, right? Um, and it's almost like tautological in nature to the idea that you will always see through a glass darkly while you're alive. But the only way to not see through a glass darkly is to not is to die. It's to go to hell. You know what I mean? It's like you're, it's literally just another way of saying, yeah, like you're fucked until you die, you know? Um, and that's, uh, you know, not fun to think about. Not, not cool. Um, you that's know, some I, catch that catch 22. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like we're just waiting for some guy with a fedora to challenge Paul back, you know, and be like, you know, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's that's but that's scary. actually an argument that uh, my parents gave me many times when I would have discussions with them about certain topics and I would say, what is this? What is that? What does this mean? How does this work? And they would just say, when you die, you'll understand uh, when it came to anything philosophical, when it came come to I- anything that well, I say philosophical, but it, in my mind, it was philosophical, but it, it was probably more technically religious. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand the bigger points of life and I'm asking them these questions and their constant, uh, argument was when you die, you'll get it. And that s- seemed like such a freaking cop out to me. Like it, it actually infuriated me as a child, uh, being answered in that way all the time. Uh, like how is, how is Jesus and God and, and the, the Holy spirit all one thing? Oh, you'll find out when you die. I I don't want to wait that long <laughs> to figure this out. Like I'm an asshole about this. Like either explain it or I'm just not going to buy it. Like that's So it's I definitely know. it's definitely frustrating and I think that's what you're you're sharing is that it's it's certainly frustrating and I think what Ben is saying is it's also scary. I mean, Christianity is largely a religion of deferment. It is, you know, what is it? Uh, every knee will bow every, you know, every tear will be wiped away. Like there's a deferment of vengeance. There's a deferment of um, living purely with no pain, you know, with all of the things that we don't like now, those will be removed later. All of the things you love now, you'll get them infinitely in a more pure way later. There's this constant deferment, right? So don't, Jesus says, don't sit at the high end of the table, sit at the low end, right? Because one day you'll be at the high end in the table of God. There's this reversal 
there's this um, deferment of the things that I think this again gets very Nietzschean, but there's a deferment of what people desire now and Christianity offers it to you uh, at the end. And it tells you that in the meantime, while you wait, it's, it's a virtue, it's virtuous, right? Uh, so Sklaven moral is me and Ben like to say, you got to say it like that though. Sklaven moral. Um, but, um, yeah, I, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, there's some, there's, there's a couple different funky ass, scary ways to interpret what's going on in this movie, largely between all four of the characters. That's what I'm noticing is that when we talk about what's scary, we're really kind of, I mean, I'm surprised what I'm surprised about is that we've moved from Corinne and her, in a, her, her slipping into schizophrenia, which we haven't talked about a lot to really the totality of the familial bends that we see between the different characters, which I, I didn't expect we would discuss to this degree. And, and there's a couple different ways to classify it as being horrifying. And I, I dig that. I, I didn't think about that to this degree when I started putting my notes down for this. So like always, you guys are fucking smart asses. I, I love it. Um, yeah. If you guys want to add anything else, go for it. I One of the things I wanted to mention, that it's the film style, but it goes back into the shit we've been talking about. This film is uh, like the style of, of filmmaking is very dark and minimalistic and isolationist, right? It's a cabin in the woods sort of vibe too. It's four people in a in a in a, a, a house in a in a room for a lot of the movie. Um, so it's very minimalistic, very isolationist. Uh, one of the things you hear all throughout this movie is a is a cello, a very very warm music, but also very isolating and very eerie. Um, there's a Bach. sense in which yeah, Bach all over. And there's a sense in which this movie gives you that that distinction between a very tight connection and isolation, which again goes back into being locked in a cage, frame of reference, never really knowing somebody, but yet familial and close. It's it's there's so much going on here. And I'm I'm just all these other movies that we've been talking about sort of are coming to my mind. Hereditary, a lot of Ari Aster shit. I wonder how much Bergman um played played an influence on Aster, because some of this feels uh, deeply connected to some of those movies that we've been talking about. But anyway, um, I feel like the film style, the music sort of echoes the isolation that we've all kind of been talking about between the characters in this family. I I, I did want to bring up uh, one of the most interesting aspects of this film for me was finding out that where he chose to film this, uh, for a while they weren't able to film in an area like this. This was, a, a, the island was a, a military place. And so this wasn't a place that most people could ever go to. And then it wasn't a military place anymore. And they were looking for a specific location like this. And this is the first time Bergman ever went to that location. And then he lived there forever. <laughs> he put, he bought a house and lived there forever. This was his first time going to this island. And what's interesting is this island is representative of isolation. It is representative of running away from things. It is representative of, of an illusion of a, a familial relationship that isn't actually there. If you look at all of the layers of what this island represents in this film, it's very interesting that he went there and said, yep, I'm gonna live here for the rest of my life and, and spent decades living there on that island. Um, and, and we talk about this being a representation of Bergman's life, but it's also a representation of his escape and where he decided to live out his days. Um, and for me, that is probably the most fascinating aspect of this film, 
is what that island represents and what it became to the artist who who used this place. Um, I don't know if you guys knew anything about that or thought anything about that or if I'm just maybe reading way too much into it, but it just struck me as very fascinating. Jim, didn't you buy property out there? I don't Oh, sorry. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and in fact, yeah, I think just I, because he's my uh, favorite foreign filmmaker of that golden age of foreign filmmakers, I was like, oh, I got to live where Bergman lives, even though I don't care about biographical criticism. God, <laughs> uh, Ben, if you were uh, jumping in. I know I was also just going to be a smart ass. I was like, <laughs> just much like with The Shining, where we have a few different people just living in this very sort of contained isolationist situation, I too saw the island in this movie as being a character of its own and really sort of lent its own... Nah, never mind. Anyway, nah, I don't know. I'm not going to go with that. <laughs> it really didn't seem to be heading. Never mind. No, no, I, I was like totally listening. I was like, what? that's great. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? I, I was digging that. I was trying to give Jim shit for thinking the house was a character in The Shining. That's all I was yeah, really trying to do. Yeah, the island's just a <laughs> bigger <laughs> house. I caught it. I love that. I got it. Uh, I, it took me a second to understand what you're... I was like, yeah, the house is a character in The Shining. That's right, Ben. Good job. Yeah, okay. And then... I don't see how the islands is character in this, but okay, let's let's keep this running. And uh, no, I all right, got it. Shit given, shit received. <laughs> I That's I can argue that the island is a, is a character in this story. <laughs> Think of the cold waters. You have the rocky shores, uh, and then you have this ship that is like somewhat inside of the water, but somewhat in the land area. And and these are different elements of the different layers of your insanity and your different layers of the reality of what you are actually trying to understand of the world you're in and and in the middle of this is this little shack that they use is their theater and their place to act out the uh thoughts that they have going on I, i'd see that as the brain <laughs> or well, maybe continue. a dream <laughs> i i'm right there with you let's continue with that so the island when you look out from the island what do you see you see water and you see water reflecting the sky and you see the sky in the water and you see the water in the sea it's like you look up and there's a reflection of up and down and down and up, right? So it goes back into that idea of seeing something for as it is, seeing something skewed, right? So I think that I think that's purposeful. I, we, we joke, but I think that is in part probably part of Bergman's decision making, at least for filming this. Um, he probably just lived there because it's gorgeous. I mean, I, that's a very it was beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. <laughs> it was very beautiful there. So yeah. I don't. I'm not all about the giant rocks on a beach, though. I, I mean, this might just be the California girl in me, mm. but uh, I, I like a sandy beach. Uh, a rocky beach is is not as inhabitable. Uh, although if you're in northern, very northern California, it is rocky. But uh, I mean, any place you can just sit on a rock and look off the coast and think about existential grounding and meaning and interpretation. Uh, it, you know, it, it, teach their own. To each their own. That's literally the, I mean, maybe that's part of the point of this movie, to each their own, you know? There you go. Uh, anyway, this is getting too meta for me. I, I, I can't segue when we've gone this meta. I need help getting out of it. Uh, or, he, you know, maybe, yeah. Should we go straight to final thoughts then? Yeah, let's do final thoughts. Let's do All final right. thoughts. So, and mind us, just to remind everybody, this was a viewer suggestion. So we usually, behind the scenes, have given you, our viewers, uh, at least I have, I'll take the blame for this, uh, giving you guys shit for picking... Uh, Martyrs, and what was the other movie that we did that was a viewer suggestion? Do you guys remember? We did one other one. 
Blah, 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 blah. I'm putting you guys on the spot. Uh, I'll check here. in just one moment. Uh, well, Jaws, but that was fine. Uh, coherence was another oh, one. Oh, coherence. That wasn't too bad either. All right, you know, I'm being I'm being hard on our audience. You guys, you guys are just semi insane. Uh, so uh, yeah, this was like I we're, we've gone up the ladder. We started with Martyrs, which was uh, just go see our review of it. Um, and then we went to Coherence, which was. Eh, a little better, a little funky, a little, and then this. So I, what's it going to be next? I have no idea. Um, anyway, so yeah, I want to just throw us out there that we should give accolades to our, to our, uh, to our viewers for this one. Yeah. So this is, uh, we've talked a lot about the film's existentialist themes. We've talked about it, the relationships. I mean, these are deeply layered relationships. And I said at the beginning how I think that this film is like a novel on screen, even though it is cinematic. I don't mean that as a, uh, a knock against the filmmaking, but just in the degree of the inner life of all of these characters. And a lot of that credit goes to all of the, the really great performances starting with, of course, Max von Sydow uh, and uh, Harriet Anderson and Gunnar Bjornstrand and uh, Lars Pasgard. I think they're all really, really good in this movie. And this is Bergman near the top of his game. This is my third favorite Bergman film after scenes from Marriage and... Uh, um, wild strawberries. Um, so I really, really like this movie because of just how much depth the characters have and just how much depth the character interaction is. I mean, one of the things that I, in my sort of early days of understanding film, when I was first trying to get into um, liking movies and understanding them from a more critical lens, I watched um, watched Streetcar Named Desire. And uh, I was shocked at the end as I watched it. Wait a second. This is just the lives of three people. How could this be a great movie? Doesn't a great movie have to have, you know, more scope like like uh, Lawrence of Arabia or Ben-Hur? Like, aren't those what great movies are? And and actually, this this is you know, through the glass darkly is, is enigmatic or emblematic, I should say about how just the lives of four people could have world cha world ranging and sort of macrocosmic, um, uh, insights into how we relate with each other and what it is to be human. And in that sense, I think the film is is masterful. And, and in that sense, I think the film has a lot to say about our relationships with others and our relationships with the giant so what. Um, and, and all of that, I think, is, is, is masterfully carried. Um, that said, I've already complained about the God is love bit, which we've had some pushback from other my my esteemed colleagues. Um, but still, I think the God is love bit is a little too aphoristic, um, even though I, I do understand the arguments um, leveled. And I also thought that um, the, the, the incest bit makes sense to me on a character level, but I don't think that the film really needed to go there in order to do the things that it that it did. I that almost felt a little bit gratuitous and and um yeah. So even though I made an argument for why both of these characters do this thing, um I wish that they they had found sort of another way around that. Um I also 
thought that that um, there was a plot element that uh, you know the the incest bit happens, and then uh, Martin is never told of that. And I wonder about that artistic choice, and I wonder whether or not uh, having Martin discover what happens between Minus and Karin seems like a a place that's that's rife with drama and that there there could be something that really tests Martin's devotion to his role in Karin's life. And of course, we don't see that. Now, I understand why uh, the characters might not have told him about that that incident. But nevertheless, I wonder if that's not a, a missed opportunity um, as we're we're understanding uh, all of these characters and testing them as good drama does. Uh, so I, those were sort of the two things about this film that just landed a little off for me. That said, overall, as I said, I really like this movie. I'm giving it four out of five stars. It's one of Bergman's best. Scene from a, scenes from a Marriage and, and Wild Strawberries, though, are two five star movies from, from Bergman. Um, Bergman is my favorite of the form foreign directors of the 1960s. There was Fellini, Godard, Truffaut, Bergman, uh, all working. It's sort of the Mount Rushmore of foreign directors at that time. And and Bergman's my favorite of, of all of those. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's my favorite too, mostly because of the incest bit. I think that that did it for me. I, yeah, you know. Um, hey man, I this this movie is uh, was a, a surprise. I you know I like I, I'm not a huge film guy. I like horror movies. I hadn't seen any Bergman film to the Seventh Seal, and this is my second Bergman film, and I like this one better. And um, I'm I'm getting very, uh, it's I'm, I've never like wanted to watch more of a director's other films in my life than I do now with Bergman, just because. The two that I've seen have been phenomenal, um, and they've been scary. That's the other thing is they, I, I, you know, it's a horror podcast. I want to go back to that. Like this is they, these are scary things. I mean, they're not like I said in my intro. They're not traditionally scary. They're not genre scary. They're not traditional horror movies, but they have that horror element spread through them, sort of the blood through the veins. Um, and uh, it's it, it hits you. You know, we like horror movies on this podcast that are deeply cerebral that make you think that uh, hits you in your gut, that 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 do something to you that lasts. And I, I think this is one of those movies for me. I mean, it certainly has got the familial bend, like I said, and that that scares me. Um, it is a meditation on really elements of just mere existence of trying to understand your place in the world, trying to understand your connections to those closest to you and those around you. Um, and then doing it poorly when everything seems right, like everything that you seem that you're doing, I think of Martin, for example, that I think there's even a scene where Curran says something like, you know, you do everything right and that's your flaw or something. There's something like that. There's some line like that. And that that's, I, I think that's some of the key to understanding and unlocking the, the fear in this movie, um, is, grounding and context and making sense. And this is a movie that reminds us that we probably don't see the world purely the, the, the way it, the, the way it was meant to be, you know, the way the author intended, right? That that's, that this film makes us think like that, uh, whether you agree with that, that sentiment or not. And I think it's largely Bergman working out what he was going through at the time. But when I'm on board with Bergman on his ship, I'm in a place that keeps me thoroughly and entertains the wrong word. I mean, I'm certainly entertained in the sense that this is a film and I'm watching it and I'm enjoying it, but I feel like I'm a part of something monumental now when I'm watching his movies. I feel like there's a depth, a layer, an oomph and a, a, a sincerity to it that I, I don't see 
much today. Um, you know, we talked earlier about gratuity. I mean, I feel like this is like all films today have just unbelievable. Like most films have this drastic element of gratuity, and then whether it's gratuitous violence, gratuitous sex, hitting you over the head with the point of the movie. Like there's that. That's what I feel like the world we're in now. And so when I see a movie like this, that's all dialogue, and it 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 to some extent is a fairly simple premise, and there's only four people, and it's isolated and it's minimal in a lot of ways. Um, that speaks to me. It takes me back to a place where I can focus and I can meditate on whatever the film wants me to meditate on or focus on, fill in the blank. And in this case, it's something that the more you think about it is deeply terrifying, that you may not really know people, very hereditary-esque, I hate to keep going back to that, but that you 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 can never really know a person as they are and see the world the way it truly is, that we're skewed in our vision largely. And to ask how deep that goes in the way you see your friends, your family, your loved ones, and yourself, and the way that that and the way that that connects to how you reach out to larger narratives about your place in the universe and God and why you're here. And some of the deepest. I mean, this is this is everything philosophers write about, like in one movie, and at least philosophers that matter. So, uh, yeah, I uh, I got to give this a four and a half out of five. Um, I, I can't give it the five because it it. I got it. that love thing at the end was a little ad hoc. I, I heard Ben's argument. I get it. Uh, just and and it and I think it's a powerful statement, a powerful argument, and I think it's uh, I, th I think it's deep and meaningful. But I think that the way the film used it was just too shoehorned for me, and and it it uh, should have been a little lighter in its touch. I would have I would have maybe rated this movie a little higher. That ending seemed like a cop out. But then I asked myself, like I said earlier, is that the point? is the point to have it be that way on purpose. And so I, until I really like, no, I don't know. I just got to give it a four and a half out of five. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. What a shitty film, a four and a half out of five. Uh, I, I loved it. It's a great movie and I recommend it uh, to everybody. In fact, I'd probably recommend this before seeing Seven Seal. Maybe one thing to talk about some other time, but uh, I definitely going to see the next two films in the Faith Trilogy after this. So a fantastic viewer suggestion, 100%. I want to interject something real quick first. Uh, you know, you said something on the Climax podcast that I thought was fantastic, even though I hated that movie. And that was I'd much rather see the effect of an illusion on somebody rather than see the illusion. And that's something that that through the glass darkly gets perfectly. So I, I just wanted you reminded me of that. And I wanted to get that in as well, because that's that's a brilliant thing that this movie does. Uh, sorry, go ahead next. Now imagine if they would have given her Spike Sangria to boot. You know? Damn, there's some EDM in there. Corinne would just lose her shit. She'd have some interesting dance moves. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go with mine and then we'll end with Ben because I think he'll probably say something much more intelligent and we'll end on a good note. Um, so one of the things I've noticed that's happening with horror films today um, is that it's not necessarily just horror. We have people writing stories that are mostly drama, little bit of horror elements input in there, some comedy moments that are even interlaced, and um, it's this whole meshing of genres. And, and we're seeing this in a ton of film today, actually, not just horror, just film is understanding the importance of layers and 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 peeling back these onion layers of different genres in one type of film. Back in the day you would go to Blockbuster and there and there'd be these, you know, 
sections off of genres of where you would get stuff. Uh, and it was very, very 90s to say that this is a comedy film, this is a drama film, this is a horror film. Uh, we're not doing that as much anymore. And it's really awesome to reflect back on some films, even in the early 60s, that didn't care about that shit either. <laughs> They're like, this is, there's so many different layers to humanity. Why wouldn't there be layers to a story that have all these different elements added into it? Um, and I feel like this is one of those movies that does that. And it makes it kind of um, appear timeless in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like it's from 1961. It feels like it could be something that could have been filmed today. Um, it, it feels like something that could be understood in our modern texts. And uh, that's really hard to accomplish, considering how old it is, that it could be understood completely in our day. So that, that adds a huge element to it. But also just the beauty of how it was filmed is really important. Um, I, I find it horrific to be losing your mind, but in some ways, I feel like she saw more than some of us get to. She is trying to find God, and she is trying to look into this bigger thing than herself, and, uh, and she's trying to discover something, and then she discovers that's not something she wants to discover, and that it's actually horrific, and I... I feel that to my core. Like, I feel like that's something I've done. I'm like, I, I want to solve this mystery. I want to look more into this stuff. I'm going to steady up on these things. I'm going to, I'm going to learn more. I'm going to keep going into this place. And then, all right, here's the information. And you're like, Oh, shh, I didn't want to know that. I didn't want to know that. I didn't want to know that. I didn't, I didn't shoot. And it makes you think of that whole ignorance is bliss. Uh, you know, thing. it's, it feels that way. And I almost wonder like, if this isn't necessarily God so much as it is knowledge. And, and we see this in a lot of religious texts where these ideas of knowledge and understanding are equated with God. Love or, or knowledge or whatever. These are the, the two, like, opposing sides. Love and knowledge. And um, sometimes you should be either seeking love <laughs> and maybe not so much the knowledge we we find ourselves at that like um that fight within ourselves right it hurts it hurts to try to seek out these things and it's interesting to put this in a perspective of a real life story like just a real person experiencing a real life thing and everybody seeing it without any weird fantasy stuff no weird shadow monsters no a bizarro creature that comes out from under the floorboards. It's just an understanding of the world and it brings you pain and suffering. Um, and that's somewhat what it is to know things. So, uh, I don't know. It's it's kind of that, that dread of growing up and knowing the world isn't that great. <laughs> it's kind of a dark place and it might be better to just run away on your little helicopter and, and just try to get as much help as you can from somebody who can help you through the darkness of the world and understanding it. So I don't know. It's, it's a sad story. This is a sad, this is, <laughs> this is a really depressing and sad story. Um, indefinitely freaky. Uh, 
but I, I give it a four out of five. It is very beautifully shot. It is it is definitely something that messes with your head. Um, but I think it messes with your head because it's too real. And and that's part of the, the crux of the problem of this film is it it's real horror. Um, much like when we were talking about Come and See and it was talking about the horrors of war and it's real horror. This is just real horror. This is just real shit that happens that's pretty horrific. And and in a way, that's more powerful for me, maybe. Just reality is more horrific than ooga booga booga clown. <laughs> and I know I said I'm afraid of clowns, but <laughs> maybe that's more horrific. It's just the realities of the world we live in, right? So, yeah. I, I think it's a good film. I do recommend it. Uh, but, oh my god. But watch out. <laughs> you know, it might hurt you in some ways. Yeah, stick to your ooga booga booga. Like stick to those. Stay ignorant. Like many of the characters in this in this movie. Stay ignorant, folks. Just stay ignorant. Anyway, Ben, now you have to say something smart. She set you up. You gotta say something genius now. You gotta yeah, knock it out of the park. I always I always hate that whenever Shira says that because this is not the <laughs> first time that she said that. <laughs> and I never know how to follow up. But I do agree. I do agree with the way that you've sort of captured that the horror in this film is, is realism. And I think that's really what Bergman seems to be fantastic with is just taking his own fear uh, as a, as a deeply kind of like seemingly afraid person as he's been described not to not to make this too um, sort of like biographical and make interpretations about the person um, as Jim has mentioned, obviously the art stands on its own. You don't really, really need to bring in the personal qualities in the life of the director. However, I do think that that's important when understanding why his films, why they might not necessarily be categorized as genre horror, do seem horrific. And they take on what I, I consider to be a, a horror mode of of creating this this type of work. Um, it, he's fantastic at like sort of I think like just digging up his own fears and what he is deeply afraid of in the experiences that he has in his own life and putting those on camera in such a way that it doesn't seem like he's just shooting you know, it's not like it's not like you have uh, like a situation like you might see a TV show like The Office or like a like a Blair Witch where it's almost like a mockumentary, right? Where you have a camera and you're just viewing some people going through a situation and it's either relatable or it's not. It's supernatural or it's not. He is so good at like just drawing the essential, critical, fundamental elements of, of what it is, I think, to be human. Like, I mean, and this isn't something I'm uniquely saying. Like, I think we all agree with this. We've all mentioned this in one way or another. He's so good at drawing that out and displaying it in an artistic way that he does it better, I think, than anyone else that I've seen. Um, and that's what makes him special, I think, as a director. And like what is probably a common thing among all of his films is that he's able to take those those fundamental human elements and display them in a way where you really figure out how to connect with it. Like it doesn't take, it doesn't take a, a lot of extra thought. Although, I mean, you can spend hours digging through his works and his films. They're just very easy to empathize with. I, I just think they're so easy for me, at least to empathize with whatever it is that he's putting on screen and the concerns that he has and the, the ideas that he's struggling with. It's like, I totally get it. Like what I've seen so far, like I, I really feel like I get what he's trying to put on screen and that just makes it, <clears throat> I don't know, so much better because like, I guess like the empathy is there. <clears throat> you don't have to, you don't have to suspend any disbelief because it's not about some boogeyman. Like, as we've said, it's, it's real problems and real situations and real ideas. And that's all you really need. In fact, like that's, that's even better than the way that Stephen King does it because he tries to draw the horror out of the mundane, but 
Bergman shows how the mundane is itself quite horrific. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing unique about these characters, I think, that makes them separate from people that you might meet in your everyday life. And maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you wouldn't know it because of the facade that people put up. But these are not unbelievable situations. And yet in the course of this experience, in this sort of sliver of time that we're able to observe with these four characters interacting, we have a profound, I think, look into fundamental pieces of human existence and existential sort of crises and struggles with God and, and all of this stuff. And it's absolutely fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and on top of that, I mean, it's not just like, it's not just the writing and it's not just the acting, but again, like he does this in a way that's this cinematographically beautiful. Um, and we, we did talk about the lighting a little bit in that one scene where Kareen is laying in bed and she's looking and we're sort of taking perspective from the wall and there's the shadows and Martin is, is still asleep and she is awake and starting to have one of presumably one of her episodes where she's hearing the birds and then goes upstairs. And that scene when she goes upstairs and, and she has this experience, I there's there's a couple places in, in this film where, where you get like this intense sense of symmetry. And this is one of them where we're looking again from the perspective of what you would imagine the wall would be like. We're about where the crack would be, where, where she's standing and facing that. And you kind of have like the, the window, I think, in the very center where she ends up standing and the chair kind of to one side. But it still seems just something about that room and like with her in the middle it's it's an experience. It's an, it's an experience that you might have whenever you're looking at a piece of visual art. Like there's this something about the way that that framing is constructed that I to me at least it like it hooks you a little bit. Like you're seeing something special. It's like when things line up just right and you suddenly notice a pattern and what you thought previously were just scattered random dots. Like they suddenly line up and you see a shape. It's kind of like that where you have this sudden flash of like this is just right and like you just know that it's perfect. It's there's there's another scene like that, too, whenever we're downstairs and we're looking down the hallway out to the front door and everything is just framed just perfectly. And and Minus is like running from room to room. And I think he's looking for Korean or, you know, whatever it is, but it's framed just perfectly. And you get that sense that things have just aligned like the stars have aligned and you're, and you're having like this sort of like divine experience just looking at this visual representation of this scene. I've seen this and of course, like there, there are other directors, I think who are able to do this, but probably not nearly as often. I don't think I've seen an example of that in older films. Um, but in any case, like, yeah, Bergman is able to do this just, just so well. And I mean, it was the same thing. It was the same thing in the seventh seal where it's not necessarily, it doesn't look the same, but there are scenes that they're constructed in such a way that the scene itself draws, I think sort of like a, a, an evocative, like emotional experience out of you just because of the way that it's set up. And again, that makes it so much easier to empathize with. Um, because of all of these things, like just, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I wish I could give it a higher score than a 4.5, but still, I don't think I can. I think I'm going to have to go with 4.5 again on this one. Because again, like, even though this is, even though it's absolutely fantastic and we, and we dig into those fundamental characteristics of, of humanity. And there's a lot of themes in there that I resonate with. And because it's a Bergman and it's framed perfectly, and and all of these things coming together in perfect harmony, it's it's technically, I think, flawless. Like I, I really enjoy this film. It's fantastic. Um, but again, though, it didn't necessarily transcend. It's there's it's not it's not transcendent in, in the same way that Seventh Seal is. And I don't I, I understand why other people might not necessarily have that same reaction to this film. Um, it's a subjective thing, right? Like viewing art is a, a, a somewhat subjective experience. Objectivity for me only gets you so far. You have to have that one extra quality on top of that. And this almost got there. It was very close. 
Um, and in fact, it makes me really feel like that it's not fair to compare Bergman's films to other films. Really, we, I, I feel like I need a separate scoring system because every Bergman film would have to be compared really just to only other Bergman films or maybe every other film ever created, not created by Bergman. Like it, it has to be its own sort of separate thing. You can rank order Bergman films, but saying that this was a 4.5 in the same way that some of my other, the witch, I mean, I love the witch, but it's not the same 4.5. I don't know how to make that distinction because there's only, only so far you can go on the technical merits. And again, like I, I really can't wait. So we're going to, we're going to pitch something in a second. I think Jim is going to pitch this and I'm really excited we get to do this because it allows us to, I think, revisit some of our old scores and really sort of think about the way that we've looked at films in the past. And me personally, I'm excited about this because of the experience that I have now seeing far more films and having a greater appreciation of really good art when it comes to filmmaking. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's that's a long tangent. I'm not even sure how to how to exactly to get out of that. But this one is a 4.5 out of me, but it's a better 4.5 than I've given to other films because Bergman somehow is able to do that much better. Um, and anyway, yes, yeah, so that's that's what I have. <laughs> please, question, please qu- away. question, question. If if that helicopter sequence in Through a Glass Darkly would have ended a little differently. So if the helicopter comes down and death from Seventh Seal opens up and he's driving the helicopter. Would that have made it a five for you? That would have made it a two for me. <laughs> no, I think, I think, I think it would have, but only if he had busted out his scythe and it would have been like a lightsaber scythe, and then he comes in and kills everybody that way, right? I think, six. I think that really would have done. Six out of five. Six yeah. out of five for me. <laughs> thank you for fucking up. Uh, thank you for fucking up the five star rating. Um, now, I yeah, I think the answer to your question, Ben, is to give more than one five in your entire deadly analysis career. But uh, we'll get to that a little bit next week. As soon as soon as somebody makes a film that is transcendent in the same way that Seventh Seal is, there will be another five. <laughs> Well, thanks for watching. I will see you next week. For uh, We're here every Sunday, guys, so join us as we talk about death, helicopters, incest. We do it all here. on the de- Well, we don't do it all. Let me take – hold up. Wait, slow down. We don't do it all here. We talk about it all. Well, some of us do it all. No, I'm not going to go there. We all just talk about it. I don't know how I'm ending this episode this way, but we're doing it. Anyway, check us out on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and we'll see you guys next week for our next movie and our next discussion. Peace.